Okay, pop quiz. How many of you have already read Genesis chapter 34? Wow, okay, all right. Those that are watching online, we can't see your hands, so we'll just assume that a lot of you did. Thank you for reading that, and just a note of encouragement. As we go through Genesis and the weekly update, I try to give you the the chapter that we're going to be looking at as we bring God's word uh, to to you, and it's really helpful. I just believe that... uh, It gives us an opportunity to go through that text better. So thank you for reading that. Next week will be Genesis chapter 35. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 35. Pastor Joe Oliver is going to be bringing the word to us. And so as you head into this week, read chapter 35. So if you read Genesis chapter 34, you know this is, I mean, this is a tough chapter to read. It's not not very long. Um, God's name is never mentioned. Nowhere in reading Chapter 34, do you ever hear the name of God? And when, if you know the story, it's, you know why. God should have been uh, a part of that. And it's a very dark chapter. It's filled with evil and wickedness. And this is one of those chapters that you really could make a movie about. I mean, if there is ever a binge-worthy TV series on Netflix, they could have made it out of Genesis 34. Uh, and in one sense... Genesis 34 is really, it's hard to handle. As Christians, it's hard to read. It's hard to handle because of what happens in that text. And we wrestle with it. And on another side of the coin, it's hard to handle because the theme of Genesis 34 shows us that as Christians, as people of faith, when we're persecuted, when we are violated and abused, those circumstances can be really hard to handle in us responding appropriately. So you may have guessed it, the title for this weekend's message is Hard to Handle. Let us pray. Lord, it is always uh, an honor to bring your good news to the people uh, of this church and those watching online. I'm incredibly humbled and in full honesty, transparency, you know that uh, I am filled with many faults And I need, in this moment, your Holy Spirit to bring the words alive that I believe you have birthed in my heart. This is a difficult portion of Scripture, but it's a portion of Scripture that I believe you desire to use to help us grow in our journey of faith. As we respond to difficulties, to persecution, to times where we're violated and abused. So, would your Spirit just move this weekend? And make your word come alive. And everyone said, amen. Have any of you ever read portions of scripture that just really made you scratch your head? I mean, I, you know what I'm talking about? Like there are just, there are times when you read God's word and especially in the Old Testament and you read some of these stories and murders and, and it's just difficult to understand and, and really difficult to process. We've, we've looked, gone through Genesis, and, you know, one chapter that comes to mind in Genesis is, you know, why would God call Abraham to sacrifice his son? I mean, as a dad, that's like, how do you wrap your brain around that? Um, there are other portions of Scripture. If you look at the book of Job, I mean, loses everything he has. He loses his wife, his kids, his family. I mean, if you take something less dramatic, even working through the genealogies, how many, you know, like, so-and-so, but got so-and-so, but got so-and-so. And just sometimes you ask, okay, God, what's the purpose behind this? What's, what's, the, what's the meaning? How does this apply to my life? And, you know, 
And so it brings the question, how should we respond? What should our response be when we read chapters of the Bible that are like this, that are really difficult to understand? How are we supposed to interpret and how are we supposed to respond to a chapter like Genesis 34 that's filled with rape and murder and revenge? And this weekend, I'm going to do something today that I would never recommend to a young preacher. It's something that through seminary, they tell you not to do. As a communicator, you want to keep your message small, sweet, and short. And while I will work on it being short, this message really has two parts. And we're going to talk about things that are hard to handle. First, how do we interpret God's word? How do we respond to hard to handle passages of scripture? And then the second part, we are going to look at the context and the verses of Genesis 34 that are really hard to respond. And what do we do when we experience hard to handle situations in our life and how do we respond appropriately? But first things first, as we look at difficult portions of scripture, we have to remember Paul's words in the New Testament. This is a verse that probably will be familiar to you. It's 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, everybody say all. Okay. It's a really, it's probably the most important word in this verse. All scripture is what? Inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what's right. All scripture. So first of all, when we get to those really difficult portions of scripture, including the genealogies, Paul says, yeah, even that is useful for us. Even in those difficult passages, even in the ones we don't understand, there is something there that God desires to teach us. And I would suggest this weekend that difficult passages of Scripture like Genesis 34 are actually evidence of God's hand and his divine inspiration in Scripture. So this chapter, it not only reflects the wickedness of those who don't follow God, but it also demonstrates how wicked God's people can be when they're not obedient to him and they're not responding in the spirit. There is depths of wickedness in all of our hearts, including Christians. Can I get an amen? This is a story, if you think about it, if you've read Genesis 34, and we'll get to it in a moment, but this is a story the people of Israel would not have wanted repeated. Remember, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Torah. It's one today that Jewish people and us as Christians alone, we love and cherish rightfully so. So this story that happens in Genesis 34 is not one that reflects kindly on the Israelites. But yet Moses found it important to put into scripture. Human instinct, Moses' nature, the, the response of the Israelites, their instinct would have been, hey, let's just not put that in the book of Genesis. But they did. So the fact that this story is included, to me, it validates and gives evidence to the divine inspiration of God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay, I don't want to make the service longer, so I'm just trying to make sure you're with me here. So remember that. Look at this. Look at it. The Bible is not a mere human composition. 
but one through which the divine creator speaks truth regardless of how it reflects on people, including those he's called. The Bible isn't just some words that followers of Jesus wrote 2,000 years ago and it's been passed on. God divinely inspired through the power of the Holy Spirit these writers to give us scripture today. And part of the power, and I believe the significance of the Bible and the validity of the Bible is that sometimes it does reflect poorly on the very people he's called to represent him. And I would suggest that as we approach scripture, that as we look at scripture, both the difficult passages and the ones that we don't understand, and in fact, all scripture, that we approach scripture three ways. Here's the first. Uh, And this is my response. This is how I prepare for messages. So as you read God's word, as Christians, as people of faith, I believe that we should approach scripture, all of scripture, First, by understanding the context. And let me explain. So when you read God's word, and there are plenty of tools to do this, as we approach God's word, especially in Genesis 34, and we're going to look at this in just a moment, it's important to us to understand the historical background. Who are the people involved in the story? And then we need to to look for key words. Are there any phrases or words that the authors repeat? Oftentimes that happens and it brings significance to the story. So first thing is we need to understand the context, the background information of what's happening. When is the time period? You get that. Here's the second. Approaching scripture, first, after we understand the context too, we have to listen to the passage. So we bring and we get all the information as much as we can. We learn about the story. We learn about the context. And then we pray and say, Holy Spirit, now as I read through this, would you reveal to me and listen to what God is saying in the text? And last, as we approach scripture, we mine for the message. As I bring the word to you every weekend, we have to ask the question, okay, we need to understand the context. We need to know Um, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, but ultimately we get to the meaning. And of course we say, well, God, what are you saying to me in this text? But too often people of faith stop there. And we ask the question, God, what are you saying to me? And instead, that's an important part, but we need to recognize that the Bible was written for a community of believers, that we are a people of faith. And so we have to ask the question, God, what are you saying to us? There's corporate and there's individual. But these are the way in which we should approach Scripture. So as we read and as we dive in, and we're going to do this today, you begin by looking at the verse. You get a little broader and you look at the chapters. You have to look at 32 and 33 and what comes after chapter 34. And then you have to look at the broader theme. What is the theme of the book? What's the genre of the book? And then you have to look, does this hold up as far as all 66 books of the Bible, the bigger picture. And this is where we often get in trouble. How many times have you heard doctrine or seen somebody pull one verse from the Bible and build a whole theology around it without looking at any other thing? You know what I'm talking about? That's where we get in trouble. So our approach to the Bible, our approach to scripture, especially those that are difficult to understand, is really significant. It's really important. So let me remind you of the theme of the book of Genesis. We've spent a lot of time. We started this in really in January of last year. But it's important that we keep the theme of the book of beginnings in front of us. So the theme of Genesis 
if I was going to condense it down to one sentence, it would be this. The creator God, we understand that God is the creator of all things, who is sovereign. He controls everything. Nothing happens without him knowing. And he's beyond our full understanding. The creator God, sovereign, beyond our full understanding. He carries out his purposes among people who are extremely broken and sinful. If there's one thing we've learned as we've looked at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their family, they're messed up, right? Which signifies we're messed up, okay? We are extremely broken and sinful people. Why? Keep it going. Oh, that was it. Why do we know it's because, because of sin, Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve's sin brought brokenness into our life. We weren't created that way, but we found that out early in Genesis. And as I mentioned last week, this is our story. Abraham, Isaac, the patriarchs, they're not, they don't have a market on being messed up. We're still messed up because of the root of sin in our heart. The same is true for non-believers and non-Christians. Sometimes I think we forget, we look out in the world and we see, yeah, the world is wicked and those evil non-Christians, those people who don't follow God, they don't have a market either on wickedness and evil. We do a pretty good job of our own sometimes as Christians. Even people of faith are capable of evil and wickedness if we're left to our own heart's desire. And Genesis 34 is gonna show us that in just a moment. Because of the fall, because of sin, wickedness and evil are deeply rooted into our hearts. So let me just back that up with one verse in the Old Testament and one verse in the New Testament. The prophet Jeremiah talks about this. The human heart, our hearts, they're the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah says, who really, really knows how bad it is? And then you move forward to the New Testament. Jesus himself talks about this. Jesus, in in debating and going back and forth with these religious leaders who want to say they want to put everything down into law and black and white and it's how you perform and it's what you do and how obedient you are to to the law. Jesus says, for from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts. Look at this list. Jesus says all of this is in our heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Because of sin, that all is in here. And what we're going to find out in Genesis 34, if we're not obedient, if we're not careful, the depths of our heart can come out in that. So as mentioned, this, as mentioned, I mentioned earlier, this, this is a dramatic story. It's a, it's a pretty dark and evil story. It'd be a great movie, and it'd be, a, it'd be a great binge-worthy TV show. And they're basically just like in a play or in a movie where you have different acts. As we go through Genesis 34, there pretty much are four acts to this chapter, to this story. And each chap, in each act within Genesis 34 introduces new people to the story. So let's look at it together. If you have your Bibles, open it to Genesis 34. Of course, they'll put it up here. Here's act one. Dinah, who we're going to talk about in just a minute, Dinah went out. That's act one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out. Now remember when I talked about, we're looking at the context and it's important to pay attention to words that may repeat. 
So we can break this chapter down into four acts because these two words that are highlighted in green, went out, are repeated. It, sh- it shows the beginning of each of these four acts. But Dinah, she's the daughter of Leah, the daughter of Jacob, um, she went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, when he saw her, he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. Now, this is the English standard version. Let's, let's keep going, okay? And, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, don't miss that. You have Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and the two characters that are introduced in this first act, the first beginning of Genesis 34, are Dinah, the daughter of Leah and Jacob, and the Shechem. And let's talk about them for a little bit. And I don't want you to misunderstand. When that version in the English Standard Version said he humiliated her, he raped her. He saw her, he seized her, and he raped her. Now, Dinah, as I said, was the daughter of Leah. And as you're going to learn later, Simeon and Levi are her full brothers from Leah. Dinah was probably 14, 15 years old. And the word daughter, it's interesting, is used 14 times in this chapter. And from the get-go, in such an incredibly difficult chapter to read, make no mistake that Dinah is the victim. Dinah is the victim in the story. And as you read the entire chapter, you never hear from Dinah. But she was violated, she was abused, and she is the victim. Now Shechem is the one who violated her and raped her. Shechem was the prince of Shechem. His dad, Hamor, the Hivite, was the king of the land. And so the city even is named after his son, Shechem. Now, Shechem is the prince. I mean, this is the guy with all of the power, with all of the wealth, with all of the influence. And he sees what he wants and he takes it no matter the cost. Even in that chapter, it says that Shechem is the most honored in his father's house. And it's interesting to me that he saw and he took. And if you go back early in Genesis, remember when Eve sinned? She did two things. She saw and she took. She saw the apple and she took it. It also sounds like a familiar story with King David. He walks out. He doesn't go to war. He saw and he took Bathsheba. Bad things happen when you see and when you take. And after this, I mean, this is, this is incredibly difficult to wrap your brain around. Shechem violates and rapes Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And then the text says that he falls in love with her and he tells his dad, I want this girl, go get her for me. And that leads us to the second act. Act two is Hamor went out. We are gonna learn about the dads in this story. So Jacob, the dad of Dinah, he heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But his sons, Jacob's sons, were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, here you go again, went out to Jacob to speak with him. 
The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry, rightfully so. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. And I love this line in this text. For such a thing must not be done. So we talked about Dinah. We talked about Shechem. We learned then. And then the two new characters that are introduced in this act two are the two dads. Hamor and Jacob. And then we hear about the sons. But it starts out with Jacob. And I don't know about you, but... Having a daughter who's 21 years old, I really struggle with this. I struggle imagining putting myself in Jacob's sandals and knowing my own anger, my own response if my daughter would have been violated. And I don't know if you caught it, but what did it say Jacob do when he heard about the defilement of his daughter? Four words, he held his peace. And man... (laughs) How many dads would be like, I'd have a hard time holding my peace? And when you first read this, it's really interesting because I think our response is, Jacob, be a man. Dude, do you not care? And he holds his peace. And the Lord really spoke to me this. Jacob was the one who wrestled with God. Jacob had the encounter. And as you see throughout this, Jacob is slowly and steadily being transformed. It wasn't sudden. And I, I just really believe that I wonder if Jacob's transformation was part of what we're going to talk about today and learn is that he didn't react. He held his peace because God was working and, and transforming his heart. Wisdom causes us to hold our tongue and not react even in such an incredibly wrong and violation such as what happened to Dinah. But now we have Shechem's dad, Hamor. He comes in the picture, and this is the dad of the offender. And, of course, what does he do? He comes to meet with Jacob, and he's trying to cover up the mistakes of his son. You know, I thought about it, and I was like, I wonder how many times he's done this before. How many times had his son, the prince of Shechem, who had all the power, who had all the money, who had all of the influence, and... This is a story that too often plays out in our culture today. Men with power and position and authority see and they take what they shouldn't have. And here is this dad negotiating with Jacob. But then Dinah's brothers come back. And maybe they aren't being quite transformed as maybe Jacob is. And they return in the middle of this conversation between Hamor and Jacob. And they are understandably angry and outraged at the violation of their sister, but recognize Shechem not only violated Dinah, he violated the entire family. And it's interesting that this is the first time since God changed Jacob's name to Israel that Israel is mentioned as a whole group. This is the first time. See, Shechem violated not only Dinah, but he violated the entire family of the Israelites, and the brothers understand. And they say such a thing must not be done. And now we come to the climax here of this chapter, the climax of the story. These sons of Jacob, all of a sudden where Jacob is holding his peace and he's, he's, he's negotiating this peace process with Hamor. The sons come in and they say, Dad, we've got this. And what do they do? Much like they probably learned from their dad who 
has a history of being pretty good at deceiving people. They deceive Hamor. And what do they say? They were like, okay, we'll, we'll let this marriage happen if and only if all of the men in Shechem are circumcised. And we're not gonna get into the specifics of that, but this was a pretty painful thing and that was a big ask, okay? And Shechem and Hamor are like, done deal. And if you think about it, they're speaking for a bunch of men who have no idea, who have a say in it. And I don't know about you, but if I wasn't there, I'd be like, wait a second, time out. Okay, like what's going on here? So now Shechem and Hamor have to go back and they have to convince all of the men to do this, which leads us to act three. All of the men of Shechem went out. Here we go. All who went out, again, those are words, of the gate of his city, they listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. They agreed to it. And all who went out of the gate of his city. Now, I have no idea. I would have loved to have video of what Shechem and his dad said to these men to convince them. But if you have read it and you look into it, we're not going to go into it now. They do a bit of deceiving of their own. And they say, look, these Israelites want to be part of our city. They want to be, we could marry their daughters. They could marry our daughters. And at one point, Hamor and Shechem even say, all of their possessions will be ours. So there's some deceit going in here and they convince these men somehow that they're gonna be circumcised. And now we get to the final act, act four, where Simeon and Levi go out. On the third day, when they were sore, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, these are Dinah's full brothers, they took their swords, they came against the city while it felt secure and they killed all of the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and they took Dinah out. Now, it doesn't say exactly went out, but you have, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and they went away. Same idea. But then after that, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain. They came back and they plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. And look at this, all of their wealth, they took all of their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and they plundered it all. Simeon and Levi, they go back in and not only do they kill Hamor and kill Shechem, let's talk about this. Shechem deserved justice, but they didn't stop with Shechem. They killed the dad, they killed the son, they grab their sister and they go out and then they get their brothers. And now that their sister's safe, they come back in and they slaughter everybody. They slaughter every boy, every man. They take the women, they take the children, they take their belongings in the house, they take their livestock and they plunder it all. They take it all. And remember, this is God's people. Now make no mistake, Justice needed to be done. But one abominable act was followed by another one. One horrific act that defiled a young girl and family was followed by another horrific sin that destroyed a city. It was one horrific and evil and abominable 
act followed by another. Both acts, both the rape of Dinah and the plundering and the slaughtering of the innocent, both of those acts defiled the people of Israel. It's a dark and troubling story. And yet, this is God's word. And we just read at the beginning that all scripture is useful. So God even has something for us in this story. So we've listened to the context. We've listened to the passage. And I pray that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts. And now we're going to mine for the message. So look at how this story ends at the end of the chapter. We find Jacob having to respond now to the actions of his sons. Jacob's the one who wrestled with God. Jacob's the one who is being transformed. Jacob's the one who um, miraculously reconciled with his brother Esau that we talked about last week. His daughter was defiled and he's, he's trying to figure this out and look at what he does. He says to his, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites. Go to the next slide if you would. I love that. Making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Jacob was not happy with how his sons replied. Now, some would read this, and and I believe this is part of it. Jacob was probably worried about retaliation. He said he's outnumbered, and I think that's part of it. But here's the key point. When we talk about mining this message, I think Jacob, when he was saying, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, I think Jacob was worried about how others, other communities, other towns, other herds, how he would be representing God and God's chosen people. Jacob was worried about the character of his family in the midst of the land. The Hebrew word for stink is like a rotting dead fish. Jacob's saying, your actions, your response, your abomination in response to the abomination that we've already experienced as a family is stinking in the land. And rather than being people of faith and representing God's kingdom well, now we stink in the land. See, Jacob, I believe, realized that for people of faith, it matters how we respond to evil and injustice. It matters. If you and I are Christians, if we're people of faith, we're going to live by people of faith. When this happens, even as something as horrific and as wrong as what happened to Dinah, evil and injustice, it matters what our response will be. You see, our instinct, we talked about it, the deceitfulness of our heart. We read that story, and as a dad and as people were like, yeah, they got what they deserved. No, they didn't. Shechem did. But one horrific act was responded by another. You see, we will want to fight back. When we're persecuted, when we're struck when we're violated we will want everything in us to strike back to pick up the swords as Jacob's sons did and we will want justice on our terms though not God's and if we do if we pick up the swords and if we strike justice on our terms 
we will even sin to achieve it. And that's not justice. That's revenge. You see, justice is of God. And justice is biblical. But revenge is of Satan and is evil. And both as people of faith corporately and us individually, we have to ask, what will our response be when we are attacked and persecuted? What will our answer be when we are horribly wrong? And I want to be perfectly clear because I am not suggesting we should not seek justice. What happened to Dinah as the victim, justice needed to occur. occur. We should stand and fight for justice. But there is a fine line between justice and revenge. And what happens in Genesis 34 is revenge, it's not justice. So are you saying we shouldn't seek justice? No, absolutely not. I'm saying we have a choice. We can either pick up our swords like Jacob's brothers, or we can pick up our cross like Jesus called us to. We should always seek biblical justice. To me, as I was reading this chapter, it even, I, th- I thought of Dr. Martin Luther King. We, a few weeks ago, we talked and heard his words of, of beauty and love of justice. Dr. King never, he didn't cross that line from justice to revenge. He understood a biblical response to violation He understood a biblical response to injustice and persecution. And we as people of faith, when we're hurt corporately, when we feel our rights are threatened, our nature is, we want to pick up the sword and fight. And I believe Genesis 34 is saying there's a fine line between justice and revenge. I want us to end tonight by reading, today by reading this portion of scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. And before we read it, Paul writes this letter in about A.D. 57, and it's written from a Greek city in Corinth. And without getting too historical on you, this letter is written to the church in Rome, and it's three years before Emperor Nero takes over. And if you know anything about history, Nero was not a good guy. They say he burned the city of Rome, and when he was getting pushback from his people, he blamed the Christians. So Christians in about 64 AD were incredibly persecuted. And history tells us that Nero even put Christians on poles and put oil on them, and at night they would light burning Christians of flesh would light his courtyard and people would come and watch. And I just find it so fascinating that a few years before that, prophetically, God inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words to those church, to those Christians. And he would say them to us tonight. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. 
Instead, Paul writes, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Heavenly Father, this is a tough one. It is hard to handle. Because our instinct is to want to see not only justice for Dinah, but for people to get what they deserve. And if we're really honest, I'm just speaking as people of faith and living in our world and our culture, there are times we feel threatened, we feel persecuted, and we want to fight back, we want to pick up swords. But I believe the message in this chapter, the message that you would say to us both individually and as a body would be, let you handle the vengeance part. Let's make sure that we don't stink to those who live around us. So Father, help us with that. Maybe there are some here listening today and those watching online that are are really wrestling with that and they're on the verge of picking up their sword and striking revenge. And if we heard their story, we may feel like it's justifiable, but I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would have us respond in the way that Paul would call us to, to love our enemies as crazy as that sounds. Spirit work in us. Amen.